from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. It's Wednesday, the 18th. And we have yet another amazing show for you. First up, we're going to talk about the structure of success with Patrick Esposito. He started off as an attorney, but you know what? They learn how to deal with risk. They see too much risk. And so I'm going to ask him about this and talk about risk. We talk a lot of other issues too, business governance, team building, pivots, a lot of great stuff. He's doing some amazing things as an entrepreneur. We'll talk about that as well. After that, we're going to follow up with Sharon Darmody. She is Working Your Magic. That's the name of her organization. We have a great conversation about planning, planning conversations, planning your day and getting through uh, difficult times by being prepared by planning your conversation. This is something I've done for a long time. I'm a big fan of it. So I'm excited to share Sharon's vision with you. I can't think of anything that will help you more than sitting down and planning what each conversation you need to have looks like. You need to have a conversation with an employee that's difficult, plan it in advance, maybe even write out parts of it. So we will talk about that with Sharon, and I am really excited to share that message. So great show for you today. On Friday, we're going to talk about online tire buying, something that's been deemed impossible. And so we're excited to crack that nut. And then next Monday, we have one of our favorite guests returning. Deepak Ori has been named the number one hotelier in the world by Travel and Leisure Magazine. And so we're excited to welcome him and get his vision on the hotel space. He's doing something new, and hopefully we will find out what that is. Maybe he'll announce it on the show. Anyway, I got an email. Someone asking, do you really believe this? And they were referring to our intro banter that entrepreneurship does not have to be about creativity, risk, or passion. Yes, I really believe it. Creativity is awesome for the artist, but 93% of new startups are copies of existing businesses. Risk is wonderful if you're a bungee jumper, but sucks if you're an entrepreneur. Serial entrepreneurs do everything they can to reduce the risk so that bad things don't happen. And passion is awesome in the church, synagogue, mosque, and bedroom. But you can be passionate about other things more, like your family. Anyway, we got a great show for you today. Thanks for being with us. We'll get started in just a minute. Not that long. School for Startups Radio hopes you will reach out to us if you have any questions or comments, or if you need help with your business at any stage. From concepts to exit, Jim accepts all connections on LinkedIn. He tweets from at Entrepreneur Jim, and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show.
We are back in again. Thank you so much for being with us. Very excited to introduce my first guest. It's a very impressive career and a great book. I'm excited to learn about. Please welcome Patrick Esposito to the show. Unfortunately, he went off and got himself a law degree and learned every single <laughs> flaw that there could be in a business and learned about risk from the wrong side of the <laughs> equation, but his soul was saved and he came back to the good side of the force and has been a very successful entrepreneur. He has had several exits and of course there's nothing more cool than an exit. And right now he is running two businesses. We will talk about both. One is Acme general corp, which makes bombs boxes of bombs for uh, cartoon commercials. No, that's not right. Uh, it's an actually, I have no idea what this means. It's a public sector innovation advisory business. I understand all of those words separately. When you put them together, we'll have to have an explanation. And he is also running a company called innovation or edit. What's it called? Uh, initiative Labs. initiative labs. Thank you. Sorry. Which yeah. is helping small and medium sized businesses learn and actually implement the structure from the book. And the book is the structure of success, a framework to help build your business better. Patrick, welcome. How are you? Hey, Jim. Thanks so much for having me and uh, really appreciate the opportunity. So what did you have to do to get your soul back? <laughs> indeed, indeed. Well, you know, it's actually funny. Uh, you know, the, the law degree is a, is a, I pointed out a blessing and a curse. You know, I, I can look at risk from all different types of perspectives, but understanding how to rationalize it, paper it over and carry on is, is sort of important. And actually, uh, Bo, uh, Burlingham, who you know, at one uh, point was, um, editor in chief of, uh, Inc magazine, I, uh, met him, this is probably 15 years ago, I had a great conversation and he asked me a question. He said, look, I, I understand you're a lawyer. Can you explain to me why so many lawyers who you think shouldn't be entrepreneurs end up as entrepreneurs and end up leading startups? And, you know, I, I, I sort of told him that my, my theory, although this may or may not be right, is that, you know, a lot of folks who end up going to law school, one, we don't know exactly what we're meant to do. Right. Two, it's a great general degree. And three, for a lot of folks who aren't from, you know, historically from major metro areas where you didn't have wide exposure to a variety of careers, didn't see a lot of technology startups, you know, today, right? I mean, my kids, they see everything, right? On TikTok, on Instagram. I mean, they, they know what the world looks like. But for those of us who were, you know, born in, a, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we may not have seen a lot of startup opportunities. So we kind of found that path, right, as we matured, as we had new experiences, and really as, you know, sort of, I guess, you know, the technology era fully came of age, right, in, in the 90s and 2000s. So, yeah. Well, what about my, let me espouse my theory, Patrick, and see what you think. Right. Lawyers are good at finding problems. That's what they do. Yep. And if they can look at a situation and say, well, here are the 12 issues that I see. And I feel like we've effectively more or less solved 10 of them. And on these two right here that are left, we're, we're at 50% solved. And therefore yep. our risk is reduced so much that we should start this business because it's not that risky. 
and therefore we've changed the rules a little bit of entrepreneurship thoughts right so so one spot on two i should have hired you to help me market the structure of success book uh, because you know to your point the whole foundation of the book right is about entrepreneurs and startup leaders looking at problems opportunities and solutions in the eight areas right that if you've got them right you will generally achieve business success if you've got them wrong your likelihood of failing increases and so to your point i think um had 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 i been wiser or two had uh had uh, had I taken a look at this from a different perspective, I probably would have put that that spin on it. But spot on, Jim. You know, the reality is lawyers make great entrepreneurs, great startup leaders because a lot of it is solving problems, and we tend to look for problems, right? But we've got to make sure we also look for the solutions at the same time, <laughs> right? But if you feel like the, that the problems are solved or at right. least put off on someone else, you know. Well, I, I agree. We should start this business. I always felt like if I could get the lawyer to say yes, that I was going to win. You know that that uh, that is usually the, right the case, right? Lawyers, lawyers. Uh, the lawyer's favorite word is no, right? And if you can get a lawyer to say yes, you definitely know you've you've got a reasonably good plan, right? May not be perfect when it comes out of the launch uh, launch pad, but you can probably course correct it enough to get it to a great outcome. So tell us about the book, The Structure of Success, a framework to help build your business better. You mentioned eight things. Go. So, you know, I've been serving as a, you know, uh, an executive leader, founder, owner, advisor to, you know, uh, started a small number of companies, served in a, to an advisor as many companies and sort of had this anecdotal vision of what were the things that impacted success for businesses that I had either started, what put a drag on our trajectory, and what were the things that ultimately made things not go very well, right? And had this anecdotal theory around these these eight areas and then decided to sort of test some of those assumptions with a survey of, of you know, another 100 business leaders, you know, sort of all ranges of small to medium size, right? So some that were relatively new startups, some that were maturing startups, right, in the five to 10 years of existence, and, and some that were, you know, 10 years or older, all, all scales, right? Uh, you know, under five people, over 250 people. And as it turns out, right, if you get these eight things right, you know, your governance team, models and composition, your management team models and composition, your approach to adjustments and pivots, how you look at growth and infrastructure development, um, the right way to look at, you know, managing disputes among co-owners or owners and investors, um, and how you unwind certain folks from the business if necessary, how you look at your transactional opportunities, right? Whether M&A, exits, or otherwise. And then the two things nobody likes to talk about, right? Um, how you prepare for disasters. Abortion? <laughs> well, that's certainly one of the things. But fortunately, in the business context, we're not usually looking at that. But we are looking at disaster preparedness and secession planning, right? Because Both of those are abortion, Patrick. <laughs> well, to your point, right? It, it is... One of the things that I think is very hard, a very difficult thing for every entrepreneur is to think about what can go wrong because generally, right, we're wired to think whatever comes at me, I will solve. And two, you know, a lot of times the business is as much about us in our mind as it is about the business. And I think, you know, 
looking candidly at both long-term secession, if, if your intent is to run the business for a while, or short-term secession, right? If you unfortunately get hit by a bus, right? Or, or something like that. It's critically important, I, I think, right? When I look at the folks who are stakeholders and, you know, different startups, different, you know, growth companies have different stakeholders, right? Usually the founder, probably their family, a lot of times co-owners, every time your team members, right? And your customers, right? Because at the end of the day, you really don't have a business if you don't have customers, right? And you've got some level of stakeholder that if something happens to you, you have to figure out, even on an emergency basis, what can possibly be done to get that company across that hurdle. And maybe the decision is, we're looking for somebody who can help just operate this thing and get it acquired. Or maybe the answer is we're looking for somebody who can operate for long enough, we get somebody in who can be the actual steward over the midterm to long term. So, you know, these are the eight things generally in those last two are, are some of the hardest ones for entrepreneurs to really want to spend time addressing. But, you know, if you get those eight things right, statistically, the likelihood of success goes, goes way up. Well, we, I interjected my stupidity and slowed down the middle of your list. So we got the last two sort of covered. Let's go back to the first and instead of giving 10 seconds, let's give a couple of minutes to each in order, Patrick, please. So what's number one again, you went fast. It was the, let's see if I can remember. It was the, the team, but not the team actuality, the team of advisors and, uh, background. Right. You, you've got number one, right. And maybe I'll, I'll take a step back too, because part of what the book is about and the reason why it's a framework is, you know, there's an, there's a, you know, an approach style, a set of methodologies and a set of tools that, you know, I've found tend to be helpful when we look at these eight areas. So maybe if you're okay, I'll talk a little bit about that process and then okay. dive into the other eight areas. Does that Please go. Sound, yeah. sound well, you okay? know, you're charging me by the hour. So certainly <laughs> digress. digress. <laughs> Amazing. Right. And, and as a, as, as someone who, uh, who, you know, is still licensed to practice law, I am familiar with six minute increments. So I'll try to make the best of each of them. Um, Patrick, so, I, um, I was interviewing a, a, a 40 year lawyer the other day and it is so clearly obvious that for his entire career he has charged in six minute <laughs> increments and they learn to talk so slow i mean my god of course you were rich because some people had to sit there for years and listen to you I mean, I was about to go jump through the phone and just rip up oh my God. And then I went to his publicist and I was like, this guy needs media training so badly. And the guy, the publicist said, you should have seen it before he had media training. And I was like, ah, so anyway, I digress. That's I'm awesome. sorry. Well, and no, and to your point, I tend to be, uh, I tend to be someone who, who tends to talk too quickly. So probably I'm not fully squeezing uh, those six minute increments out as, as I should. Appreciate yeah. it. Anyway, back to the introductory <laughs> for the book. Yeah. So, you know, the way that, you know, we tend to look at the approach, right. Is the fact that everyone who's an entrepreneur brings some type of personal context and that personal context that you have, right. Your experiences, 
your, you know, your, your, your education, your biases, you know, um, every that you bring, you need to supplement and you need to supplement with, uh, you know, at least from, from what we've seen, right. A couple of concepts, right. One is building from the ground up, right. Making sure that you understand everything has to have a foundation to worrying productively. Right. So, you know, to your point, part of the reason that uh, I became a lawyer is I'm a warrior now becoming a productive warrior, right. Where you think about things that could go wrong and you think about, you know, activities that could occur and you look at ways to turn that into plans for how to, you know, mitigate, manage through those. That's where you get productive worrying, right? So worrying isn't good, right? Sleepless nights, but thinking about worrying productively, that's a great thing. Embracing change, right? We all have to be comfortable with change. You, you know, every business, every business environment changes. You've got to be ready for that and got to be prepared. One of the other things that I really like to tell folks is you have to trust yourself and your team. And, you know, to the point around what the businesses are that, that you know, that I help found, um, you know, they are largely advisory businesses. And the reason is, you know, you, you will find, I think, that, some organizations over time look at consulting organizations as not just providing, you know, information and providing approaches and providing tools, but they bring consulting organizations in to actually help them operate the business, which can be okay. But at the end of the day, I would say a lot of those folks who are consulting then ought to be part of your business because the rest of your team is going to say, why are we not being trusted to make these decisions? So at the end of the day, you got to trust yourself, trust your team, and then you've got to make a commitment to have a process. And so the process is really about, to your point, um, looking at it in some ways through that lawyer lens, right? We're going to go through a four-step process. Um, I like to tell companies from day one, figure out what you think the eight categories are that make you succeed. These are the eight that, you know, generally help most businesses. They may be right for you. They may may not be right for you, but you have to run, you know, a pretty standardized, regularized assessment, decision-making, planning, and implementation process around those eight categories. And to your point, right, it all starts with, with assessing what are the problems, right? What are the problems and what are the opportunities that exist for our business? And we look at them in these eight categories um, because a lot of that is going to be a guide to setting the right foundation, right? The right structures for success. But we don't just say, what are the problems and opportunities? We say, you know, what is the, you know, what is the context, right, for each of these? And how did we end up at this place? And then we look further at how do each of these problems or opportunities, you know, potentially impact success or how can it lead us to failure? Are there any constraints on how we solve these? And then really, how do we solve them? And and what are the benefits of solving them? And when we kind of get this, you know, sort of, you know, almost a, a, a card, right? A problem and solution concept card built out. We then go and we say, okay, how important, right, are these to our business? So we go through a decision-making process. There's some criteria that, you know, we articulate in the book that a lot of folks have found to be useful. They may have their own criteria, but at the end of the day, you really want to find the three to five things that you can hang your hat on that you need to change because you can't change everything at once, right? And once you find those three to five things that are going to be most important in your mind to lead to success or prevent failure, then you plan. And you look at basically creating a plan, you know, what's your what's your planning team look like? Who's your planning leader? You know, what would the stages be of, of 
future implementation? How would you communicate to the team these changes? And then what are reasonable implementation timelines? And for the things that are most important, and a lot of this depends on the size of your business, right? Sometimes one change is enough to make at any given time because you just don't have enough time and resources. Sometimes it could be three change initiatives. I generally recommend not taking on too many things. Um, you know, when if you, you believe in Agile, you should yeah. do one at a time and get it yep. right. Exactly. Exactly. And then especially when you're a startup, right? So, yes. you know, if you're, if you're a 250 person, uh, you know, high growth company, it's different, right? You could run three, you could run five. You, you know, I would generally tell people stick at three, but you know, you can expand, but if you're a startup and you're really here, you know, <laughs> doing the hard work at the beginning of a business, one thing at a time, to your point is going to be the pathway to make sure that what you're implementing gets done and then you can move on to the next one. And so, you know, that's sort of the process that we recommend to operate. And to your point, right around the categories, you know, govern, and management, right? The two parts of sort of your leadership team. Most folks at a startup have some co-founders, have some management team members. Maybe they have a board of directors. Maybe they never framed it up. Maybe they're still playing hero ball, right? Making decisions on their own, which 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 a lot of us do. But you know, the way that I've tended to look at governance is, um, if you have investors, you're usually you know, you usually have a requirement to add some of them to the board and you usually have, you know, a couple of the founders or managers and then an independent voice. You know, that was the case in the first startup I, I helped to lead and found. Um, but when you don't have that outside investment, sometimes you don't have other voices beyond, you know, either your own or those of your co-founders. And that can often lead to, decisions that really aren't looking at it from a full perspective because you're down in the weeds, right? You're grinding out revenue. You're making sure that things get delivered. And sometimes you can't look up, right? And get this more, you know, uh, 360 perspective. So one of the innovations, and I can't actually claim credit uh, for this, two, two, two friends of mine who had an environmental services company, they uh, gave me a call and they said, hey, look, you know, we've got this business. It's going great. Um, you know, we want to plan for the future. And we're not sure we agree on everything. Um, we'd like to add you uh, to our board meetings, but we don't want to add you as a board member. You don't have any decision-making authority. You're here to help advise us, counsel us, and help us get to better decisions together. And you got paid we by don't the want to hour, right? Well, you know, actually, I got, I got paid by the meeting. Okay, right yeah, to yeah, your point, yeah, like which yeah, which which, which is meeting or something like that. That's which which to me was a great concept, and the concept that I thought was very interesting was the fact that sometimes you don't want to give up power, sometimes you want to give up decision making authority, but sometimes you recognize you might need someone else there just to bounce ideas off of, and there's value. And so I've taken to calling whatever you do, right, whether it's a formal board of directors or whether it's just having some friends and family at the table or professional service advisors, it's your security council, right? It's, it's the security council for you and for your business and for your partners to help make sure that, you know, you're looking at everything from a perspective that, that is not, you know, day-to-day -day operationally um, focused, but that, you know, can kind of encompass a broader view and bring an experience that sometimes of having done this before, right? Like a mediator in advance almost, Exactly. Like, let's keep like moving, Patrick. Exactly. We got to consider the time because you are charging by the hour. <laughs> so let's keep moving. Perfect. And you know, management team. Obviously, it's something that a lot of us 
look at, right, we always want to grow our management team. At the end of the day, we would love to probably wear less hats, right? When you, when you run a startup, you start at the beginning, you're wearing a lot of hats, thinking about how you build that management team. Part of the, part of the puzzle, right, is what's the talent that you have access to look like? What are your co-founders good at? What are you good at? And then what are the gaps? And how do you find the right people to plug those holes? You know, how do you keep them engaged? How do you compensate them? Obviously very important because if you have a management team and you don't listen to them, um, we all know where that's going to end up, right? That's going to end up in a place where folks start to leave and you lose talent. Um, and that obviously puts a lot of potential negative, um, you know, um, risk on the business. Um, you know, looking at the other categories, adjustments and pivots, and the growth and, and infrastructure for development, those are two you know, pieces of the same coin, right? When you're a startup, usually you want to grow. Not always, but usually. And you know, your plan that you formed at launch, it's often going to change, right? My first startup that, um, that I was part of, you know, we made a number of adjustments, a major pivot, um, and frankly, ended up with a, with a great success for, you know, for our team, for our investors, for our technologies. Um, but if we had not been willing to change course and had not been willing to listen to what the needs of the market, the stakeholders were, we probably would have ended up with a zero, right? Um, so you've got to have a process for that. And look, you're wearing a lot of hats as a leader of a startup. One of the things you've got to be concerned about is how you lay the infrastructure down both for yourself and your team to succeed. Um, you know, if you're focused on revenue and profitability and generally, right, <laughs> most of us are, you got to be very careful to make sure to make the right investments. Sometimes that's technologies to allow for better data and communications across your team. Sometimes that's hiring, right? Other team members um, to, so that you wear less hats and can focus on the things that are critically important. Um, and then, you know, the other areas I would sort of call uh, foundational, right? Um, a lot of us start companies, we have very flimsy you know, corporate bylaws, very lightweight LLC operating agreements. You know, we, we may, from a corporate standpoint, not have a shareholder agreement, right? We may, from an LLC standpoint, not have provisions in there for, you know, um, surrender of shares, right? Or, or uh, withdraw from the business and the right way to value an owner who's leaving stake. Um, these are all things that are easily, easily solvable, right? But at the end of the day, if you have a mechanism from day one or, you know, <laughs> inside the first year of founding, you're going to end up with less consternation down the road and less, you know, less loss of focus on the business because these other issues pop up. Everybody knows, with, you know, how the, how the business is going to manage its way through disputes and through potential breakups going in, you usually have a lot better relationship on the other side. Um, what you know, are the, the best thing, ways to plan for you and your founder to argue at the end? <laughs> well, to your point, right. I, I look at it a couple ways, right. There's one, which is, um, you know, these, these legal documents, right. That provide the framework. And again, as, as somebody who's a lawyer, I, I tend to go there, which is if it's spelled out and writing the way this is going to play out, we all look at each other. We all know how it's going to play out. And maybe sometimes that makes us behave better. Right. Um, you know, the other side of that I tend to say is, uh, related to the expectation, right. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I often do with um, founding teams, um, especially when there's a little tension, right, is I, I ask them something that, um, and I've got to credit 
you know, Marissa Mayer, who, you know, was an exec at Google and then ran Yahoo with this insight, um, you know, and, and she asks people on her team, what do they want to protect? And, you know, if you can protect one thing in life, may not always be perfect at protecting it, but protect it from encroachment from the business, at least in some way. And if the folks you're working with know, hey, <laughs> we'd like to try to protect encroachment from this one thing for this one person, sometimes you end up with less resentment, right? And less resentment may lead to better production. So, you know, I, you know, personally try to make sure that, that you know, I'm present at most of my kids' activities that are important to them, right? Whether it's sporting events, school events, what have you, for a lot of people who are parents, that's important. I had a team that I worked with, a, a team of developers um, that got frustrated with me uh, for scheduling meetings. And what I didn't realize is they had a team lunch every Wednesday at a restaurant that had a burger special every Wednesday. And what we realized we needed to protect for that team was Burger Wednesday, right? And you know, if you end up with an expectation of we can't protect everything you want to protect, but by golly, we're going to try to protect one thing from, you know, the business causing from work causing problems for life. Um, you can end up with frankly, I think a lot better relationships and expectations where you never get to those points of, you know, massive disputes or breakups. Excellent. I love that. And burger Wednesdays are really critical. You know, and, but <laughs> Indeed. It, it, you know, it's a sign of the larger symptom. The hidden agenda, you know, is usually there. Well, and, and to your point, right, this this whole concept that a lot of folks have about, you know, radical transparency, right? And, you know, Brene Brown sort of, you know, talks about rumbling with vulnerability, right? Being open to conversations. And I think to your point, right, it's communications and clarity. And to your point, you know, just transparency on, on what's important. And again, we can't always guarantee that work won't come into play around something that you'd like to protect. But if we can all say we're at least trying to get there for the team, you end up with better outcomes, right? Uh, so yeah, obviously very, very important to be transparent and have those communications. Patrick, final word, please. Uh, one, Jim, grateful to be, uh, be part of this too. Um, the structure of success and all your online booksellers and a lot of your retailers uh, this month, October 2023. Uh, if you'd like more information, you can you know, go to patrickesposito.com, um, hit my LinkedIn profile, or visit uh, the companies that I'm with, uh, Acme General Corp and Initiative Labs. Oh, we had so much we didn't get to. <laughs> well, I really enjoyed the conversation, Jim. Thank you so much. Thank you, uh, but we have to have you back and discuss more. But great stuff. Thank you so much, Patrick. Sounds amazing. Thanks, Jim. And we will be right back. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. Very excited to introduce another great guest to go along with Dr. Garko on not in the same topic, but sort of related. Let's talk about 
occupational rehab and not only learning about that, but more importantly, how everyone else can apply some of the lessons and learn for their occupation, vocation, or industry. Please welcome Sharon Darmody to the show. She is author of a new book called Work Your Magic, Create a Better Business Community that Works for Everyone. She has had a very successful career as an organizational coach, as a mediator, and as the founding director of Strive Occupational Rehabilitation which she launched in 2004. She has prestigious degrees from big universities and things like that, but she is Australian and is calling in from Brisbane. Sharon, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yeah, great. Thanks, Jim. Good morning. Well, I'm saying good morning to you. It's uh, morning here, 6 a.m. Well, it's almost, ah, it's, uh, almost the exact opposite, four in the day here, so... Uh, good morning to you, and I will have a drink in an hour as you go have breakfast. <laughs> I'll go and have a coffee. I'm, yes. I'm ready for it. Tell us about your new book. Congratulations comes out in a day or two. Tell us about it. Uh, look, Work Your Magic really is based on the premise that we, rather than we want, having for many years, I think we've let people fall over and we pick them up in workplaces. We want to keep them well. We want to go upstream and make sure they don't fall in the river. Um, so it's all the sorts of ideas for you as if you're a team leader, if you're a manager, or even if you're just wanting to look after yourself to keep yourself and your team well at work because we spend a lot of time at work. Yes. So give us an example. Uh, I guess um, what, what we do with it is just lots of small things. So you might say, how do you connect with your team? How do you make sure your team is efficient? What, how do you set some boundaries for yourself at work? Um, what are the routines, rhythms, and rituals for you as a person that you know will keep you well at work? Okay. But give us an example. Give me an actual, like, what, what's one of the things that makes you happy at work? What, what makes me happy at work? Uh-huh. You keep um, saying, yeah, give us an actual me, one of the examples. I think a really good example that I talk to people about is how do you set yourself up? Say, say you're going into a difficult conversation at work. I think a lot of people just run in and, and we're nervous because nobody likes a difficult conversation at work, do they? They don't think, oh, gee, I'm looking forward to running into this. Um, and so sometimes we can just do that. We can just run into that conversation rather than really preparing for it. So a couple of things would be firstly to say, A, like, what do I want to say in this conversation? And more importantly, what are the questions that person will ask me? Because sometimes we go in and we're so nervous ourselves, we think, oh, I want to say this, this and this. We forget about our audience and influencing them and what are the questions they will ask. But then one of the other exercises to do in that and that sort of um, chapter would be how do you walk into that conversation as calm as possible? Because, as I said, it's pretty natural to feel nervous in that situation, but it's not going to help. You know, if you've got your adrenaline running, it's not going to be good for you in terms of that conversation. So how do you settle yourself down? So it might be just making sure you arrive a few minutes early. It might be actually going for a walk first, but just saying what, how can I make this a healthy situation, not only for me, but also for the person I'm having the conversation with? 
I have lots of conversations that I'm nervous about in particular when I'm going to have to fire somebody or, or do something like that. And I've always found that the easiest thing to do is to type up a sheet of paper that says what I want it to say. And then when they come in and say, all you have to do is say this one sentence, we're here today so I can give you this sheet of paper and tell you what's on it. And then basically you can just yeah. read. Unfortunately, the company has decided that we've warned you nine times and you haven't made a change and therefore we've decided to cancel your employment. Yeah. What do you think about that strategy? Look, I actually often say to people, there is nothing wrong with taking some notes in. And so I think people sometimes feel like, I'm the manager or I'm the team leader and I have to look like I know it all. But you can walk in and say, look, this is a really important conversation for me. So I brought some notes and um, I'm going to, um, I just want to go, because I care about you, I want to make sure that I cover off uh, what's important here. So, and even just what you said, just preparing for it. I can't tell you how many people will come into me and go, this conversation went completely pear-shaped. And I'll say, well, what did you do leading up to it? And I'll say, oh, what do you mean? Oh, I just walked in. You know, so even just having that time where you said you prepare for the conversation, you make some notes, you give it some consideration, I think that's really important. Well, I'm more concerned about a, a conversation that goes banana-shaped, not pear-shaped. I don't even, what the hell does that mean, Sharon? Pear-shaped. That doesn't mean anything. Well, you're Australian. Is that is that secret Australian code for... It might I got be a secret raise? Australian code. Uh, so it, it went off course. It went, um, it, it went not as you were planning. Well, I figure Sorry, from I the context, yes, but still, that's not... Uh, that doesn't make any sense. Why, why would a conversation? Hi, I get yeah, whatever. I know that you have an acronym. Let's go and talk about the magic. Take us through the elements of magic, please. So I guess with uh, my book, I, I think what a lot of people do with regard to, they know that, that work isn't working. Say, say they may feel it themselves. They may feel with their team that, Things aren't going as they'd hoped. Um, and so they make lots of change and often lots of change quickly. So they, and what I find then is they often jump from the frying pan into the fire. So they make a change just to make a change. Um, and what I'm suggesting with Work Your Magic is to use some sort of framework where you first diagnose what's going on. So what I have look to create in magic is what I think is the five pillars that really uh, keep us, as I said, keep us well at work. So then you go through those and go, well, uh, which of these perhaps isn't working for me? And then you make the change based on, you know, which of the five pillars you need to work on as an individual or, as I said, your team needs to work on. So they are meaning, authenticity, um, you know, can I be myself at work, ground rules, as, as I said before, what are those routines, rhythms, rituals that keep us really well? The I is the connection piece. How do I connect in at work? Because we do better as a team and that has never been more important um, since the pandemic. Uh, and also curiosity. Um, I think, you know, the world is changing at such a, a cracking pace that we can't think we know the answer because the answer is, 
potentially changing from day to day. So for us to be open, for our team to be open and curious and then creative, I think is really important. So my book, you know, with that, you can sort of diagnose which one of these perhaps isn't going well for you. And then it gives you these some exercises like we've already sort of touched on about, you know, that you can work on yourself or with your team um, to make a difference. All right. Well, those are useful. I, I like those. How does all this get impacted by working at home? And how much are you working at home in Australia overall? And what do you think is going to happen there? Do you think that we're going to go back to the office or not? Mm. Look, there's been a real push, I would say, in 2023 to go back into the office uh, in most of the capital cities in Australia. I think... Um, I think we do do better as a tribe. I think we really, as much as there are so many advantages from working from home, I think we do need to see people and we need those incidental conversations and we need to be able to turn around to someone and and have a quick chat, which we can't do at home. Having said that, though, I think it really does go back to that curiosity pillar and I think as workplaces, if we are going to survive and thrive, in whatever this next phase is, because things have changed, we need to be curious about what is going to work for our team. And I think it is some hybrid model because I think working from home does work and there are lots of advantages. So I find there are people are like, oh, no, 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 we've got to go back to the way we did it. It was working. Or, oh, no, we've got this brand new world and we're all going to work from home. And I think it's somewhere in the middle and you've got to work that out with you and your team. What do you think, Jim? How, what, wh- where are you guys sitting in the States with that? Uh, we're having a big fight about it. People don't want to go back, but the big, big companies are saying, yeah, you have to. And people are arguing and pushing back. Uh, I think also that finally they're starting to have some data come out that says, you know what? We're not more productive at home. And forever we've been saying, oh, people are more productive at home. And I just don't believe that because I am not more productive at home. My wife is not more productive at home. We stop and talk, you know, maybe that's the same as the water cooler talk, but you know, we stop and talk about the kids and, you know, and I just don't believe that people are not as productive if they're not watched and encouraged and, and stuff. And I, you, you said tribe matters. I think you definitely benefit by, uh, random conversations, unplanned conversations and the socialization that is so key to work actually becoming friends. I don't understand how Mm. you become friends with someone that you've never met. Uh, and so I like, I, I think that people need to be back at work, uh, and you know, a hybrid some sure I, I'm willing to do that, but people are taking it too far. So for example, the auto union here, the UAW, the people who build all of our cars, they are demanding a 32 hour four day work week. And right. you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I'm like, should I have a seven day or a six and a half day work week? <laughs> yes. Yes. It, can, it definitely can feel like that. So, um, but I think we are more productive 
at at the office. So yeah, and I think also we are. I think again, in terms of that curiosity, I think we are facing times that are potentially, you know, um, more complex than ever before. And so, you know, two heads make better than one. You know, just that opportunity to quickly get together with people and brainstorm and, and you know, maybe not land on the first or the, the quickest decision, but, you know, really sort of puzzle our way through and come to a, a solution together. I think that's how we're going to actually, um, you know, as I say, solve the problems that we're, we're facing at the moment. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I don't think that we can do it this way. Getting a book published is always a fascinating story. I love to ask people about that. Uh, was it harder getting the book published, written, marketing now? How far? Oh, you're at the very beginning of your marketing now because the book just came out uh, a couple of days yeah. ago. Where are you? Or just what are your thoughts on the process of? actually being published? Well, that is interesting. It's certainly been a huge learning curve for me as a first-time author and really a, you know, an occupational coach and um, working predominantly in, in mental health in my, in my work uh, career. Um, I would have thought that writing the book would be the hardest bit, but the other bits have been really Interesting, um, certainly finding a publisher as a first-time author. So, uh, you know, very thankful for She Writes Press for um, taking a chance on me. Um, and then, as I navigating things like Instagram, I'm not necessarily a, a tech sort of person, but, you know, being part of all of that world as well has been huge learning. I don't necessarily know if actually writing the book was, was the hardest part. What is your, um, how, did, how did you find it, Jim? What's I'm your writing process? Uh, let me answer that in a second. Let me, um, I want to drill down a little. What's your actual writing process? Uh, look, mine, I'm a sprinter. So I would do it, I would write the book in, uh, and I'm a planner. So I'd do it in defined blocks. Um, I'm also a mum. So like if my kids had gone to, um, uh, they do art on a Saturday morning. So I would have like four hours on a Saturday morning and I would sit down and I wouldn't get up till they walk back in the door and I would, you know, say, go, go for it as a sprint rather than doing small, small bits. And do you type or do you write on a legal pad uh, or? Type. No, definitely type. Okay. And do you edit as you go or do you type, 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 and then don't even look at it and edit it a week later? Yeah, no, more that I would do big lots of typing uh, and then have a bit of a break and then come back with some, with fresh eyes. And how did you go about the public, uh, finding a publisher? And you, you've mentioned that it was, uh, a, a process. Tell us more about that. Look, um, as I said, as a first time author, I really didn't know where to start. Um, and, um, I guess the simplest thing is I got lots and lots of no's <laughs> before I got the yes. Um, and it was just about, you know, pitching, putting my ideas out there. Um, but yeah, lots, lots of no's, but I finally got the yes. And why do you think you finally got the yes? What did you learn through the process or what were they looking for? Uh, I think they were looking for, um, I think She Writes Press is uh, 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 looking for maybe some of the ideas that uh, the bigger publishers pass by, you know, um, and so they're looking for that unique voice, someone with a different idea. Um, so, 
you know, I think it's a bit of uh, hard work and a bit of luck, like most things in life, that um, we found each other um, and they've been fantastic to work with. And now that you've been promoting it, what are you finding about the actual marketing phase? Look, still very new, um, particularly, you know, being based in Australia. Uh, I've been very lucky to work with um, Laura Marie PR, and she's been helping me uh, get an idea of, you know, who to talk to, where to go, because really it's like the possibilities are almost endless, aren't they? So it's about figuring out who are the people who will most benefit from your work um, or your book who you know, might find that value, who it may change their life and being able to um, talk to them. And what's the ratio of writing time versus marketing time? Obviously, you're just at the beginning of one of those, but where do you think, yes. where do you think that's going to end up? I don't know is the honest answer to that. As I say, I don't know what this, new phase brings and say so each phase has been and say so that the writing phase and then there was the um, um, finding a publisher phase and there was working with the publisher phase and now the marketing phase and each phase has brought something I went gee I didn't really know it would look like this so maybe maybe you can tell me Jim well I, I do know the answer to that question uh, because I I I had an interesting process with my first book. I lost the publisher halfway through and by publisher I mean the person not the company. And so because of that there was a big hiccup at the actual publishing company and we were left in a situation where no one at the company took ownership for the book. And so it was a bastard within the uh, company. And I went to them with proposals. I, I, I got a deal with score, the retired executive core, and they're going to send us on a, a 30 city tour, literally. And they killed that. You know, the, the publishing company ran that away because they were so difficult to work with. And so, uh, in the end, I had to do all of it myself and I did thousands of hours promoting it and doing interviews and stuff. And so our book had a very interesting sales curve. Most books have a, a backwards J curve. So it's very, very high. And then it goes off to zero over time with a long tail. Our book had a yep. bell shape, which meant it was zero the first uh -huh. week and then it surged yep. at the end, like the first anniversary and then it's died over time and has the long tail over time but that bell shape was because i got good at promoting and learned how to do it so the answer sharon unfortunately is one hour of writing to an infinite amount of time marketing interesting and as i said like when you started off would you ever have thought that never i thought that once i wrote the damn thing yeah. i was done <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So, so yes. And 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 any other advice for getting the book out there? It's all about promoting. I you you have to promote it forever. It it just never yep. ends, and you have to do you know ten times more than you thought you had to do. It's just uh, it's just an ongoing, never-ending process because that's what it looks like. That's just what it requires. Yep. So, 
that is good to know now. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's just, that's the rest of your life. And then you have to write another book just to find something else to talk about. Cause you're tired of talking about that. Um, right. but you can, well, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm going to hold off on that one. Yet. Yes. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll focus on this one. First. Yeah. Do that. Uh, but you know, you just really have to, you know, commit to two or three years of pushing it because that's the window and it will continue to be open uh, as you push it. Our book had a bell shape. We sold more in the second year than in the first year, you know, which is unheard of. Again, unheard of. Yeah, that's fa- that is fascinating, you know, and, and good to hear, like good to hear those different trajectories, isn't it? Because everyone, everyone's story isn't the same. That's right. And you can make your curve look like what you want to. And you're at the beginning, so yeah, yeah, it's your yeah. choice now. I'm, I'm, as I say, I'm happy to have heard that. But, you know, as I said, because, you know, I think you sort of think it will all just go in in a linear kind of easy fashion. And, and it isn't. It's, just, it's a bit of a roller coaster. Um, and isn't to say it hasn't been great, but it, 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 um, um, we've all got our own way of, you know, how it all pans out. Yes. Well, I hope it sells tremendously well for you and reviews. Well, how do we find out more? Go ahead and get a copy, sign up, all that, please. Yeah, so um, I'm. you can um, read about more about the book um, on my website, SharonDarmody.com, or at my Instagram, which is also SharonDarmody, and it's available for pre-order on Amazon. Um, it's going to be in um, all of the big book uh, bookstores, so... Um, just keep an eye out for Work Your Magic. And Darmody is D-A-R-M-O-D-Y. For those of you who don't that know that correct. name, I had not run across that last name yet. So D-A-R-M-O-D-Y with Sharon, the normal old-fashioned spelling. Sharon, thank you so much. Congratulations. Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time, Jim. I really appreciate it. Likewise, and we are out of time, but you know what? We come back tomorrow, so be safe, everyone. Go make a million dollars, and we'll talk to you some more later. Take care. Bye now.